Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of True Talk, the place where conversation becomes communication. Today, we are honored to have a very special guest. His name is Mr. Donovan Harvey. Hello, Donovan. Hey, Brandon. Nice to be here. You, you heard that I said special guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not gonna see it in the podcast a little shoulder shimmy (laughs) y'all he's literally giving us a little shoulder shimmy right now (laughs) well the reason why i said that he is a special guest is because we are talking about a very special topic today so today we're going to be talking about thinking in color so back in february for black history month we did an event talking about thinking in color the event was actually all about how the word diversity can be very harmful to people that it represents. And we really wanted to give people an opportunity to go beyond this one way of viewing diversity. And now Donovan and I, we're really going to take that same concept and we're going to extrapolate it to life, you know, because not only with diversity, do we see things in very particular ways, we see data, we see each other. And I think with social media and us having so much information and access to so many different interpretations to that, you know, we feel like we have to pick or we feel like we need to qualify that information and it can be a little divisive, you know, yeah. and that's that's not so good for the discourse. So we are going to get into that today. So before we do that, Donovan, tell the people how you're doing, what you do, and then we'll get into it. Okay. Um, I've been good, you know. Chicago gave us a little bit of fake summer last week, so I'm still basking in the fake summer glow, but part of what that fake summer did was make it hard for me to do my day job, because mm. I was sitting outside, I was sitting there looking outside how beautiful it was, and had to you know, reel it in. We're, do- we're research analysts. We're doing research analyst things. <laughs> they don't pay you to be outside. So during the day, I'm a research analyst at the Urban Institute, and my focus is in housing and transportation policy. How do they expect you to stay inside if you um, always research in the house? And I'd be one to check out the market. I mean, I go on my little walks. This mm-hmm. is off the record. You know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> observation. it's observation. And also, um, for the people that are not in Chicago, Chicago will play you with the weather. Um, you cannot rely on that date at all because it'll be in the middle of June and you wonder if there's going to be one last little snowstorm before you <laughs> before you melt for the rest of the summer. Nah, but I, I think we're on the other side of it now. It's supposed to be 80s, 80s on Tuesday. Start to get comfortable for real. We hold okay. it out. All right. That's good. So while you're on your little walks and you're observing the local area, what has really brought you to this job? What do you like about research? And, you know, just kind of give us your insight on it. Right. So in many ways, this job, and it's a mix of qualitative and quantitative data. I do a lot of interview work. There's some like housing and zoning data that we look at. So that's pretty like hard quant kind of stuff. But in many ways, it feels like a continuation of work I've been doing for a while. So prior to this, I completed my master's in public policy at the University of Chicago Harris School for Public Policy. And that had a similar mixed methods approach, at least in my coursework, with an emphasis on some of the fundamentals of policymaking. And even before that, in speech and debate, the emphasis, especially I'm going to shout out XTEMP here, but the emphasis on researching quickly and identifying XTEMP in the debate, of course, researching quickly and then identifying the questions that mattered hmm. had, is something that I've now been practicing. You know, I started debate when I was maybe 12. So, so that process is just has continued on. I really like that the question that matters. So what's the thought process behind that? Is that about prioritizing information? Is it about trying to figure out what needs to be investigated? So what does that question mean to you? Um, so it'll depend. And part of it is just like the realities of I work for an organization. The question that mattered is, is sometimes determined by who's funding the work. Mm. So that's part of it. But Um, I'll I'll take an example since I'm out here looking out the window. I live in Rogers Park. It's on the far north side of Chicago. Historically, it's a pretty affordable neighborhood and it remains a pretty affordable neighborhood, but it is growing less so. Mm. And within that, like why are rents going up? 
there are tons of questions that one might ask. First, it'll be probably a basic descriptive one. Are rents going up? If so, by how much? And once we establish that, then there's like this cascading series of questions. Could it be this? Could it be this? What do analogous neighborhoods look like? And then from those questions, you try to get a sense of what data might be helpful in answering those questions. But it depends entirely on what we're interested in. So I love that you brought us through your thought process because I feel like that's already kind of hitting at the heart of what we're trying to get at today is. So thinking in color. So what does that mean? For us, it is how can we view things outside of a binary, going beyond a binary? And how are people going to be able to do that? Well, I think it requires a thought process. You know, you didn't just have one specific question. You had you landed on that one specific question that I asked you about. But there are so many other things that you had to ask and think about in order for you to get to someplace as well. And I feel oftentimes with people when it comes to engaging with data, information, or even people, they get stuck at one particular question. You know, they don't follow it up. They don't think about how we can connect with other ideas or, you mm-hmm. know, what's another way we can ask the question or how can we interpret this differently in order to get a different result other than the one that's immediate or obvious to us. Are there any situations where that jumps out for you? Where it's like, man, we're, we're not having this conversation at maybe the level we could be. We're leaving stuff out. Are there, there are conversations that really feel like that for you? I do. Um, I feel that really kind of goes into our engagement with each other, especially now, um, I, mm. I, it immediately goes to social media where, you know, people want to take a stance. I think that's been a thing that I've talked about a lot throughout our podcast episodes. It's people wanting to take such a hard stance on a issue, want to take such a hard stance on um, a group of people or on a piece of information that they've been given. I think one of the best things about grad school for me was learning to question everything and questioning everything is not something that ends. You know, you can come to a conclusion, but that conclusion is only at this moment in time until you have an opportunity to be exposed to other information. Me personally, I welcome things that rock and shatter my worldview all the time because someone, I can read a inspirational quote on Instagram. And I'm like, Lord, have mercy. I never would have thought of it that way. You know, I'm really one of those people, but I'm open to it. I feel people aren't open to departing from how they've been viewing things. And and I recognize that it's scary. You know, we have our main thinking systems to help us navigate through life. And I feel like the best way to kind of venture out beyond what we're comfortable with it, you need to have a strong foundation. And I feel the reason people are so unwilling to engage with difference is because they don't have a strong foundation. You know, they mm-hmm. don't have a firm, I don't want to say principles, but they don't have some firm concepts in life that they know work for them. And then once they have that foundation, they can kind of venture off and start building on top of that. The reason I say I welcome things that shatter my worldview is because my world is built on certain things that are just unshakable. That's Mm. it. That's what forms my world. My perception of that world and what happens in it and how I exist in it, I welcome new information in order for me to engage within that world a little bit more comfortably. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and especially at the end, you really hit on it, where there's almost this tendency to take aspects of your opinion and make them part of your identity. Mm. Where I think it's that's what makes can make difference so challenging. And I'll use because I'm looking at this beautiful apartment across the street that I you love it. I'm looking out this window, child. I'm telling you, I'm looking at this window. So we go use this whole rent example. It's the rent, rent control is probably the easiest one to do it. The evidence surrounding rent control is pretty mixed. There are some examples that suggest it's useful in keeping rents down and doesn't have too much of an effect on the housing market. There's other evidence that suggests the opposite. But figuring out what policy is most effective for a particular challenge 
that is a very different thing than defending my identity as a person that believes in rent control. Because if, if I'm defending my identity as, hey, I'm a person that thinks rent control is a good thing and that's who I am, then you're engaging with people who disagree with that position, not in the sense of you all have similar fundamental beliefs and have different ideas on how to pursue them, but instead of you are different to me, the value you hold is wrong, and that's a much more loaded, that's a much more loaded debate, which makes the actual question of what policy is right or what is more effective much more challenging when it becomes so bound up in identity. Mm, I'm so happy that you said it that way. For me and my perspective, two people can be right at the same time, even though they have different points of view or even though they might be communicating it differently. I feel like that was kind of like the whole point of having like a Congress. You have an individual that represents a collective and they are just not the the final voice for all of these Mm -hmm. different things. They take a general consensus and then they're supposed to be debating it. And then you take more information in, in order to get us to a point in time or a conclusion at the moment until we can come back, revisit in order to make different changes. And I feel that's why we're getting stalled with a lot of our policies too. It's okay, well, no, you're wrong. No, here is the best consensus that we could come to right now in order to make a decision. And then as we move forward to focus on other things, you know, that allows us to include other different perspectives, other issues, and then we can circle back if it's really becoming um, a challenge or an issue to say, hey, the consensus has changed that affects all of these people as well. And I feel like that's what policy is. It's a response to the consensus at the moment, you know? And I feel like that is why our policies are failing us right now, mainly because we aren't getting new policies that are accurately reflecting the consensus, you know? But it's this, it's this, this diametrically opposed, like it has to be the right policy. It has to be a wrong policy. There has to, there's like this hierarchy in terms of, whose opinion or whose interpretation of the information is more or less correct when two people can be correct at the same time. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I'll, in making the point, I'll first, I'll separate like discussion kind of in the abstract from discussion and policymaking in the context of the United States federal government. Mm -hmm. Because for the latter in addition to issues surrounding discourse and dialogue, there are meaningful structural barriers to doing things that, mm. you know, you obviously have the hangups on the, the Senate dramatically overrepresents rural states and the Supreme Court, which has now far more power than it's had historically, is like six to three conservative. And then even going bigger picture, that there are just limits to what the United States federal government can do and is often almost inherently an agent of harm. Mm. But on the discourse piece, I actually wanted to come back to something you said at the beginning on that debating front. So there's a book I was reading and it might've been assigned in class and God bless the professor. I ain't read it for the class, but I've since since started picking it up. (laughs) The book's called Metaphors We Live By. And Mm. it begins with the point that in many cultures, the dominant metaphor for arg- for argument is that of like warfare. So we mm. make counter arguments, we defend our positions, right? Mm. We use battle metaphors. And the authors are contending that one of the things that changes is the way we think about argument, where instead the metaphor could be that of a dance, mm. where we're not going against each other, we're doing a thing together. And that's I think one of the things that's been really helpful in being in debate is knowing when debate's not a useful tool. Mm. And now almost all of the time, it's less about, I want to demonstrate my position is right. And more about, we are collectively trying to understand something and you're going to bring stuff that you know, and I'm going to bring stuff that I know. And we're going to ask each other questions and push ourselves to explore positions more deeply but we are on the same team mm-hmm. that that's shifting out of the debate mindset. Cause you can't be on the same team in debate. That was that that's rule number one. So shifting out of that debate mindset into the, we are collaborators on this effort mindset, I think has really shifted in my day-to-day life 
the quality of dialogue in a way that I'm quite thankful for. And you also make me think about something we've said already too about, you know, here is my personal belief and then here's the area or the space that we're discussing. We have to be willing to leave this space of your own personal comfort, of your own foundational beliefs. And you have to enter this new space to have this dance, to have this type of collaboration as well. And I feel like people aren't willing to depart from that, which speaks to that fear that I was saying. Mm -hmm. People are so afraid of leaving that space that it makes it makes everything that is said a personal attack against you, which puts it in that space of debating rather than this, this dance. We never want to take away from people's personal beliefs, but your personal beliefs are within your space. This public space that we all share together, you know, we really want to encourage people to step out there because this public space affects all of us. So in the space where everybody's ideas are free flowing, we need to find a way to make space for all of them again, but for all of them to, to live harmoniously, you know? And I think the, this metaphor we're talking about, about personal space and like the public space, I think that is the area that we're getting hung up on when it comes to thinking in a binary. You know, we don't Mm -hmm. want to challenge how you particularly view the world. That's your business, you know, but once you step out of your house and into the world, well, how you view other people in that context doesn't matter because you have to exist with all of these different people. Another thing that you said earlier that I think was so interesting is just the difference between qualitative and quantitative data. And the Mm -hmm. reason I want to bring that back up is because data is what you get from observing or from measuring something as it exists. The information that's taken from there is how we interpret it. Now, if we are only in our personal space and only viewing it from our place of comfort, the information that you get from the data is going to be skewed compared to how it could impact the general consensus as well. One of the Mm -hmm. things that I want to encourage people to think about is what does that transition look like between the data that you might be exposed to and then the information that may may be derived from it as well? Because one thing I want to make people aware of is this concept of thinking structures and meaning making. A thinking structure is literally the ways in which you organize information that you're exposed to. And meaning making refers to how that relates to you and how that forms your personal perceptions around it as well. When people are unaware that they might have a particular way of viewing all types of information, all types of individuals, they may not be unaware that they have severely limited their ways in which they can have a thinking structure or how they can make meaning because they're stuck in a box or they're stuck in a binary as well. So Next thing I want to pose to you is, and if you can give an example, or if you just want to give your thoughts, or even in your job, how do you see thinking structures or um, meaning making, you know, influencing not only the work that you do, but the people that the data represents for you? Okay, so on the thinking structures piece, and I'm going to go back to that sort of we'll use this overarching piece on the cascading questions. This, I ask this, I get an answer. I ask more questions, I ask more questions, I ask more questions. So one of the ways you see the thinking structure piece come out, let's say you give everybody, everybody at my organization, it's probably 500 or 600 employees, probably just on the research side, it's 500 employees. So it's a pretty big organization. If you give all of them one, and let's say it's an accurate statistic, let's say, We'll, we'll continue to use rent because it's pretty easy. Rents have risen by X percent in this area, say 20. Rent, have go, rent has gone up 20% in this neighborhood. I think one of the ways you'll see that thinking structure piece is the question that comes next for people. Mm. Because if you take, you assume you have like good researchers, they know statistics really well, they know how to you know, do the robustness checks, and da, 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 da. like they're doing, they're crossing all the, crossing the I's and nodding the T's, if you will. Where thinking structures are going to have the biggest influence then is not in the actual conducting of the research, but the questions that get asked. 
right? And so that's where you see it the most because for one person, that 20% increase, their first thought might go to, okay, that means landlords are realizing greater returns on their investment because the investment was the building, they're now charging more rent, they're making more money off of it. And so it's a whole set of questions associated to landlord return on investment, which it's probably the minority in, in, my, in my workforce, but certainly somebody could ask that. Somebody could ask, what implications does that have for renters who now are paying significantly more money? What influence or implications does that have on the city? So those questions that people end up asking, even if under the assumption that everybody has the exact same level of like research rigor, influence so much. And fortunately, we have a culture of people looking over, you generally work in teams, but that's, I think, the biggest place you see it is the questions that come after the initial presentation of data. I just want to, and I know you have a whole multitude of the next point, but I just got to hop in because you just made me think of something so interesting. I love the, the question that comes next. And the reason why I like that is because the question that comes next can reveal bias. And that can be a good or a bad thing. But that bias also reveals how that individual makes meaning of the information that they're exposed to. Yes. And I think the biggest place you see that, and we're going to move off, uh, we're close to rent. That's a different thing. Is when people <laughs> talk about quote unquote crime data mm. or anything involving gangs. I think that is the clearest place where you see people's, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step off of meaning making and then come back to it. Where you see people's initial mental models come into play is on something like gangs or crime, where they're so loaded. There's one, they tend to be connoted racially, right? When, mm. when you think of gangs, unless you're like from, were born in the 70s and from New York, you're not thinking the mob. <laughs> there, there's a very specific image that comes to mind when mm. people hear the word gangs. And there's a very specific image that comes to mind, intentionally created white supremacy when most people think about most kind of crime. And that's not necessarily the case. Like, sure. So on, on the gang piece, I think is the one that's it's most important. One, when we say gangs, almost inevitably, the next word that happens is violence, right? When people think of gangs, it's in the context of thinking about gang violence. And that absolutely occurs. I don't wanna sit here and say gang violence is not a thing, but Typically, we don't ask questions about gangs as a question of social cohesion or social groups for, you know, 14, 15, 16 year olds who are going to schools where, you know, if you're closing down extracurriculars and it's harder to find meaningful group identification, seems like a reasonable place to get that. And we know for everybody, group identification is important. So because of the dominant paradigm surrounding gangs, dominant racialized paradigms surrounding gangs, we don't typically think of questions about gangs and social cohesion. We don't think about gangs and service provision. It's just, hey, the state's not doing it. I, I need to be safe in this area. Well, if the state's not going to do it and I can't do it myself, I'm going to join this group that can ensure that I'm safe. So we don't typically think about it from that perspective. And it influences the research questions. Mm. So even if you have 18 million well-meaning often white researchers who are doing study after this study to say, well, no, gang violence is very complicated. It's nuanced. You see, if you control for X, Y, and Z factors and da, 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 da that's important. But the narrative stays on gang violence, mm. right? So we can, we'll talk until we're blue in the face about all of the nuance and complexity associated with gang violence. But because of those dominant paradigms, because of those thinking structures, we don't ask any of the other questions. The discourse is not nearly as rich. And I've, I've looked, I've studied, I, I know for a fact, we just don't do the same amount of writing on that as we do on gang violence, because gang violence fits very neatly into people's mental models surrounding it. And on that meaning-making piece, it's very easy for research surrounding gang violence or, oh, another gang-affiliated shooting. That fits super neatly. Oh, yeah, that's, that's how I've been analyzing that issue my whole life. Of course, duh, as opposed to, well, well, what do you mean it made sense for him to join the gang? But people in gangs, they're the bad guys. What? 
Because that's, that's to your point, that's discomforting. That, wait a second, this changes how I view the world. If you do that seriously, that's hard. And then you have to go back and say, well, damn, I've been on this planet a while. I was wrong. And that's hard too. So that's, that's probably the place where I see that come up the most is crime, but gangs in particular is one of those places where you see it. And you're right. I'm going to take a second to acknowledge the fact that who wants to say that they're wrong? Who? Who wants to? That is a very, very uncomfortable process, but it is the surest way to make sure you don't make an ass out of yourself mm-hmm. in some cases, which also makes me think about something we talked about in our last episode, which is how narratives inform our lives. You know, we have these narratives that are available to us that we've become accustomed to, and they somehow become these relics in our lives, these untouchable things that we we don't feel like needs editing. We're like, okay, this is what my mom told me about how the world exists. And so I'm going to keep that in my head for the rest of my life. Well, that was appropriate for that moment in time, but more than likely something else has occurred that has altered that narrative a little bit. And because, you know, we have conditioned ourselves to hold on to specific cultural narratives or um, narratives surrounding different identities in such particular ways, it can be very, very damaging because if it's changed and you are not correctly engaging in the appropriate manner or trying to be open to seeing how it's different, you know, we can't get lazy. You know, we can't just assume that it is the same as well. It's all right to have pre-existing knowledge and information that's informed by narratives. But if you are saying, oh, that's not quite how it was told to me, or, oh, that's not quite how I'm used to engaging with it, that allows you to update that narrative, get more information so you can um, engage in a much more uh, productive way, which also leads to something that you talked about at the end there, discomfort. You know, Mm. we avoid dissonance, but in the context of thinking in color, dissonance kind of lets you know that you're on the right track for making sure that you aren't limiting yourself. Again, we're not telling any individual, hey, you're right or wrong for having the beliefs that you do, but it's to encourage awareness of how you go about engaging with information, how you go about interpreting things, and just to see if you are putting yourself in a box, because putting yourself in a box is the surest way to uh, keep you from enjoying the fullness of everything that's going on around you. Yes. Yes. And one, that that distance piece is hard and w- absolutely distance is a good sign that unless, unless it's a comfortable one, <laughs> this is one of those, and it's been, it's been a while. There was, I remember it was a call and response at church and it's, you know, all the perfect people make some noise and you know, the church is quiet because there are no perfect people. But if you're one of the perfect people for whom everything is going right, you don't need distance. Keep doing exactly what you're doing. But you know, I'm not that person. I don't think you're that person. Maybe the listeners are, you know, we love the listeners of the podcast. Probably not either. So if everything's not going right, that that dissonance is a means to help you figure out why that is. Because it, if stuff's not going right, it means you're doing something wrong. It means there's, there's opportunity to adjust. And one of the things that I, I draw value in is you can practice dissonance in places that are easier than your hardest, your most tightly held moral beliefs. Because that's a really hard way to get dissonance. But even things, I play a lot of video games. I'm learning to play guitar. The, oh, I was doing that wrong. Now I'm going to do it right. That happens much more quickly because I'm not attached to the way I was holding the guitar two months ago. I'm like, oh, that's what I thought was right. Then somebody told me, ah, that's, that's not super helpful. You should probably do it the other way. And then I did it the other way and it was better. And so I kept doing it. So building, and this is like real pragmatic here, but trying to build opportunities for non-judgmental learning in your own life that are easy and not tied to your identity, such that you can build up to the, maybe I'm wrong about this big thing, or maybe it's more complicated than I thought it was. And on the other side of that, trying to make sure that you are in a space where that's encouraged, where you're not going to be criticized 
for acknowledging that you were incorrect. That if it's if it's us making sure we're giving people grace because we know what it's like to be wrong because we've all been wrong. Not you know going out of your way to call folks out or well you know you remember the this you meme on Twitter slash Instagram the you know you talking all this shit now this you mm-hmm. oh that's I get why we did it that was funny but it's not helpful and it mm-hmm. creates a space where rather than inviting people to consider ways they're wrong. If you know you're going to get laughed at for changing your mind, well, you're doubly committed now to not changing your mind. So really creating a space in addition to practicing dissonance on your own, but creating a space as, as the outsiders, as the people that make the environment where it's supported. But I think, and that is such an important thing of finding the little ways to do it, you know, to kind of build up that courage for like the bigger things as well. And the reason why we're taking this like quick aside to put it on this personal context, it's a return back to what happens in his job or in his general field with asking these research questions that inform policy in our lives. We want the people that are writing the code on our computers. We want the people that are asking the very important questions that's gonna inform politicians' decisions to think a little bit differently about how they go about getting information. You know, if a researcher is always going to have the exact same approach, and let's say they are an individual, white individual that is affluent, that is going to be a very dominant perspective that is going to be upheld in the context of the United States. And if they do not have um, external pressure to think differently, well, we want to encourage everyone to have some sort of fail-safe system to encourage them to be like, well, I know that this is how I view it, but how does it how does it impact other people or how would someone else engage with this as well? And I think welcoming that in all the aspects of our lives doesn't necessarily take away from what an individual feels, but it's just making room for how that opinion could impact people in this public space that we share and how we can learn from other people in this public space in order for us to have Uh, a much more colorful way of interpreting and making meaning of the world around us, you know? Mm -hmm. And again, I want to go back to this private versus public space and the private, you know, that's your personal space. I cannot tell you how to go about that as well, but it's the majority of our lives, the things that we do, how we exist is in this publicly shared social space. And we have to, we should be, you know, trying to find areas and ways in which we can get comfortable with inviting new perspectives and just newness in general in our lives in order for us to be more cohesive in group decision-making things like research, like (laughs) engagement. And for the people that love the commenting on social media, even, even in that too, you know, social media is there, it's supposed to be a town square, that is definitely what it has turned into now. But the, the idea of a town square is to kind of get all the ideas out there, you know, and to kind of see where other people are thinking. And I think we've gotten so used to being like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe people think this way. All right. Why do they think that way? What's the distance and the difference between where they're at and where you're at? Are they at the same position that you are, but they're communicating it differently? Are your intentions the same? And I feel that's my favorite part about research is what, why is there a difference? Um, This is a quick nerdy thing. My favorite thing about communication and rhetoric is the language of intention. Most times when people are trying to say something, they're not accurately using the words that fully describe their intentions behind trying to communicate in the first place. Because I have been in so many mediation spaces or I've done so many qualitative studies where I was doing a focus group or a group of people and they were from an advocacy standpoint, because that's what I do. Mm -hmm. And they were so passionate about what they were saying and they were getting so upset. But when I sat down to think about what both of them were saying, I'm like, you're saying the same thing. You know, you're just don't necessarily have the language to communicate your intentions behind it as well. And I think trying to make space for intentionality within public discourse is going to be a really great way, again, for us to uh, broaden our meaning-making system, and especially when engaging with other people's meaning-making system. Yeah. And 
I think the, that set of questions that you asked in the jump there on the how far apart are our positions? And even the one that's prior to that, the what exactly is your position? Do I understand it? Could I fairly and accurately describe your position to somebody else, even if I don't agree with it? That, that first step doesn't happen a lot. Mm. And it certainly doesn't happen a lot in social media. And this, you know, we're, I'm not going to say anything profound on it. It's just 140 or 280 characters isn't a lot. It's mm. really hard to talk about complex ideas and that shorter, shorter span. And then you add in what now is the culture of, you know, you quote tweet and you dunk on something and potentially it's out of context or what have you, and you harp on mistakes. It really doesn't lend itself to that. But even beyond the medium itself, because you're interacting with avatars and screen names, Almost in one's mind, it can be very easy to think about, all right, I'm arguing against this idea in the abstract versus this is a person who has a set of beliefs. The set of beliefs probably isn't entirely internally coherent, but it's a set of beliefs that makes sense to them. And I'm interested in figuring out what those beliefs are, because we probably, and, you know, you're in the United States, there's, there's going to be a lot of overlap because everybody, mm. people were raised in similar media environments. So the opportunity to explore, hey, what do we have in common? It's, it's a shame. It is, it's really sad that Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, I suppose TikTok now, although it's a little better in that regard, just does not create space for having, for having those kinds of conversation. And I don't know how to fix it. I think Charles, Charles in a previous episode, spent a little bit of time on this. So Loved that, but it's just unfortunate. But you said a word that I wish I would have brought up earlier, and the word is context. Context is so important from a researching standpoint, from an advocacy standpoint. It's not about just the positioning. It's not just about the outcome. What is the context that surrounds all of it as well? And I feel like the reason context is so important because oftentimes context is intentionality. You know, it gives us the additional set of information to make sure we're fully understanding and engaging with what's right in front of us appropriately. And it also reveals the intention of why you want to gain that knowledge as well. And then I kind of think about your field with like researchers. All right, why am I researching uh, soaring rent prices? Who does that benefit? You know, why is it benefiting that person? And then that kind of goes back into that, that hierarchy of thinking structures. But on a personal individual level, when it comes to how you engage in your own life, when it comes to trying to engage with different and individuals that don't come from the same background as you, make space for the context, make space for the intentionality that informs their lives. That way you have an opportunity to not only bring newness into your life and how you go about it, but you can enter this public space where things are more of a dance and not an immediate defense of your position. You know, we are, I feel like we're so ready to be like geared up and be like, all right, this is who I am and X, Y, and Z. That's fine. That's cool. You know, but also being willing to be a little bit more fluid, you know, I feel like all of us change in the context of the environment that we're in. And yes. because of that, everything about you becomes fluid, you know, once you are in a new environment. And I feel trying to hold these firm positions when you yourself might be changing in subconscious ways in like this new space, that should alert you right there. That's kind of what we do. Humans back in the day, we had to broaden our ways of making meaning in order for survival. All right, if the bush is rumbling over there and I think it's just the wind every single time, more than likely I probably die because that mm -hmm. rumbling in the bush may have meant that there was a tiger or a bear or something that was of harm to me as well. So us being able to check our thinking system and being aware of that it's actually hardwired in us. And the reason I keep bringing this up is I want to try to bring that awareness to the four of you of, hey, try to find some sort of space or practice in your life to check 
how you go about engaging with people, with situations to make sure that you don't get stuck, you know, to make sure that you don't have the opportunity of having a social death. Or if you're in a position of power, that your one track way of viewing thing doesn't harm other people that might be under you from managers, you know, from researchers, from advocates. If we always go about approaching a problem the same way, it's not only potentially deadly, but it's harmful for the people that we are connected to as well, especially from a position of leadership, especially from a position of access. A lot of people rely on their own networks to kind of verify their own thinking systems as well. You know, we have these echo chambers on social media that just constantly affirm what we're believing. And that's why those things are so harmful. We need to have these checks and balances in our lives in order for us to go, oh, I know that that's how I was viewing it before, but hmm, maybe that's not the best way of going about it. You know, I follow, I don't follow, but I constantly go on extreme conservative right sites on Facebook or Fox News or something, because I'm like, hey, I never would have looked at this issue in this particular way if I did not engage with someone who diametrically on the outside views this situation in a different or similar way. And that that piece on hardwired, the, hey, sometimes that rustling in the bush is a bear. I think that really speaks to the importance of feedback. Mm. where you know it's not a question dissonance is uncomfortable or whatever you know getting mauled by a bear is uncomfortable too so you get that feedback immediately <laughs> like oh i was wrong yes. let's not be wrong like that again because it's gonna hurt but when the when it's more abstract when it's about beliefs that provide less opportunity for feedback than what's behind that bush then it gets to what you're talking about where some of that feedback is social where mm. it's people around us telling us, oh, I don't know about that one, man. Are you sure? But if you don't have anybody to do that, then the feedback just confirms your existing thinking, right? Mm. Getting that, that echo chamber problem. But I wanted to jump back to what you were saying on who benefits from the research, because that's something that both I personally struggle with in the context of my job, that the and I don't want to speak to the research community broadly, but researchers who have some amount of like advocate beliefs have struggled with is the idea that a lot of research ends up being extractive, especially mm. in the policy space where what happens, and I'll be a little reductive here, is you have predominantly white researchers go and to predominantly black and brown communities, ask questions about what's wrong, publish you know, a journal article or a brief, Cash a, cash a check for three grand on the, the first and 15th of the month and nothing changes, right? So the question of who's benefiting from research is sure not the people who are being researched. And that's, that's one of the big challenges that we, we do work actively to address it in terms of trying to involve the community more in the research process where whenever possible, of materially supporting members of the community. So giving survey participants gift cards or for partnering with the local organization, giving them a large honoraria so we can literally put grant money in the pocket of members of a community. But that who benefits question is hard because a lot of the time it's not those, not those who are studied. And it's something that in the policy research space and in the nonprofit and philanthropy space, it's there's a lot of like, we could go on this for a while. And okay. so I'll, I'll, I'll give it, I'll throw it to you so you can see how long you want to stay on it. But that question of who's benefiting and if it's not the people who are being studied, why is that? And are we comfortable with that? Those, those are tough. And that's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about a lot. You're right. And the re this could be its own episode and so there might be a part two to that particular question coming. But the the point that we're hitting at and how it could apply to people outside of the research space is how the questions that we ask and how we go about interpreting the world around us, how does it impact the individuals that are adjacent or closest to it? That is mm -hmm. something that all of us experience in our day-to-day -day lives. That is something that we experience at our jobs. This is what we experience in our personal relationships the conclusions that you make 
and how you share those conclusions can really, really have a really big impact, not only on getting that feedback that you were just bringing up as well, but how it influences the people that are impressionable to you, you know, especially if you are like the opinion leader of your social community. And if you have like a very particular view, um, let's say it's harmful, let's say it's helpful, but if you are the opinion leader and people are looking to you, what type of impact is that going to have? So that's why Mm -hmm. having that question present of who does this impact and how will it impact them as well. That's what makes information and data so dangerous because people don't take the time to have that question. And that's what we've been saying in the beginning, having the follow-up questions or adjusting the question. That was something, or that was a word they used earlier, being able to adjust. So I kind of want to transition us now that we've kind of identified the fact that, you know, sometimes we get stuck in a binary with how we engage with information. And hopefully we've given people um, some ways in which they can become aware of their own thinking systems. Is there anything that, you know, you could suggest for people to do to, you know, think more in color or to find different ways of interpreting information? So, One of the ways, and it touches on something you spoke to at the beginning of the podcast, is I try to pretend that a person who is saying an an idea I disagree with is somebody who I know personally and I'm friends with. Mm. Because then you give people the benefit of the doubt, Mm. right? So it's not, and I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter, so this is a lazy example, but it's not like the random guy in my replies with this long kind of ridiculous thread. It's It's my little brother, right? So now I'm taking the idea seriously. Now I'm doing the work and it's effortful, but now I'm doing the work like, all right, what what do you mean here? Like, what's going on? Now I'm going to ask you follow-up questions. I want you to explain that position more. So working on like a strong good faith assumption and one of the easiest ways to do that is imagine that you're talking to somebody you know, as opposed to somebody you don't. But then on that feedback piece, it's a question of building in opportunities for reflection where sort of in the day-to-day, day-to-day life example, I cook quite a bit. I keep a little, it's not a physical journal anymore, but all right, here's what I cooked. Here's how I did it. Looking back, how'd we feel about it? Oh, it was a little salty. Uh, there's probably had a little too much vinegar. So building in opportunities for reflection and on the research side, there are ways of doing that. One is the peer review process, even in like before you get there, If you're working in a team, you'll have other people bouncing ideas off of you. But seriously, asking a question, what if, what if I'm wrong here? Or even, and shout out to speech and debate organizations, because they have this on the judges' cards now. But the if you were going to go with the opposite position, what argument would you make? Mm. You know, if you awarded the win to team A, why might team B have won? Can you Mm. make the case for them? Just making the case for the other. I find really useful, especially if you commit to it. If you really are like, hey, how would I go about, and that comes natural, that's the debate background, is that making somebody else's case happens really smoothly. But it's again, it's a thing you practice that I think is tremendously useful in slowing down that thinking process and really trying to consider some other pieces. Mm, I love what you just said about the slowing down. A lot of what we've been saying about our thinking systems and how we engage with the world is automatic. Yes. That's where the conditioning comes in. So a lot of what we're trying to give you all here in this awareness is slowing down the process enough in order for you to do exactly what you just said, to reflect, to critique either from within yourself or outside of yourself in order to get that feedback in order for us to make that adjustment. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can take all of those different pieces together, that will allow us the opportunity to start to think in color, which is such a fundamental piece of how we can take conversations and turn them into communication in order for us to have productive dialogue to do 
something about all of the things that we get stuck on in terms of our issues, our policies, our research, our conversations. You know, we want to get us out of the binaries. We want to get ourselves out of you're right and you're wrong and thinking about how we can get to a solution. And I definitely think that we were able to kind of get people there today. And hopefully people were able to kind of get a few things out of that today of how we can go from this thinking about things from our personal private space and also the public space and making things more of like a dance. You know, I loved that metaphor from the beginning. Even if we can make things more of a dance, it makes it more fun. You want to engage it's just more with. Fun. It's more fun that way. Right? <laughs> That's always my position. Like, hey, this could, we can do it the not fun way or we can do it the fun way. Why on right. earth are we going to do it the not fun way? Right. And you don't want to do the not fun way with me because I'm from Chicago. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm saying, like, one, I don't want to debate. Two, you don't want to debate with me. You, like, you don't want to engage in that. Right? <laughs> and it's like, look, I'm trying to make room <laughs> for, for what you got to say. But if we, if we want to go there, we can go there. <laughs> the way and you go edit now, the way I be saying that to Peppy all the time. <laughs> but you don't want it. You don't want nothing. You of don't this. want me to argue. You don't want me to argue. Oh my gosh. So Donovan, I think this has been such a great conversation. I learned a lot too. I think, you know, I'm feeling like dancing after all of this um, talk about fighting yeah. and dancing and making room for things. So thank you so much. This was uh, all of the specialness that I was expecting from you. And, you know, we might have to have you back soon, sir. That, that, would, be, that would be an honor. It's been fantastic, Brandon. Thank you for having me. And thank you all so much for joining us. Um, and I hope you guys are excited for next month's communication intervention. Bye.